Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. Uh, I'm here at Durant Vineyards with Ken and Penny Durant. It's uh, June 4th, 2019. Uh, thanks for joining us today. We really appreciate this. Um, we're going to start you off by asking you, why wine? Why did you go, why, why did you come here and start doing wine? Do you want to start? or Go ahead. Uh, actually, uh, we started uh, just as uh, home winemakers. We were living in Salem at the time, and we... Uh, Ken made, I think it was elderberry wine or something like that, that was drinkable, maybe. But then we ended up moving to Northern California and Ken was transferred there and we were able to get grapes out of the Sonoma Valley area and became acquainted with the Fetzer family. And, they have, uh, and so we would get wine grapes from them and make it and then we'd all we'd go back and you know, sit around the table and taste our wine and have them critique it. And then uh, that was in 1969, I guess, 68, maybe even, yeah, 68. And then we ended up moving back to Oregon. And when we moved back to Oregon, we, by then, Ken was making, we were, he, well, we were making just, you know, a home wine. Mm -hmm. and, uh, they were, and we ended up uh, actually uh, just, we started pursuing, you know, land to buy and when, with some earnest and not so much just well mainly because I wanted I just wanted land mm -hmm. and but we but with the idea that it would be great land and it took us a long it took us a long time to find it, it took us like three years you think 1973 yeah 73 and we actually looked at our original site and decided because it was it was east it was not it really sloped east mm -hmm. not south and at the time that was really important as you know now people plant vineyards on the north slope and so but then that was really important mm -hmm. to us so uh, anyway that's basically that's kind of how we got started can you tell your version if you no, i think actually i phrase it a little bit penny's value system is she's a good irish lady you know don't give me jewelry don't give me a big house just let me have some land and so we've been buying land ever since we've been married. And when we came back to Oregon, obviously, as Penny said, I was making homemade wine. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we looked for some land because that was important. We ended up with 16 acres that had walnuts and silvers. We planted a little bit of a few grapes. You know, and this, this whole thing was just beginning. You know, I, mm -hmm. the stories I, I won't tell are about the 20 of us that used to meet in the fire hall mm -hmm. and, and Tigers, you probably have heard mm -hmm. these stories. Now, Myron was there. <laughs> there, there are great stories about that that I won't tell. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, my, my flippancy today is I knew all 20 of us. Mm -hmm. Today I have you know, 300 tasting rooms in Yamhill County. You know, I'm lucky to know 20 people, I think, <laughs> at the end of the day. But, uh, you know, we started to plant some vineyards and, you know, just goes on from there. Yeah, it, uh, actually, it's when we started and we actually planted grapes in 73 and we started with the Fuquay family and also with the Erath, Kina and Dick Erath and Susan and Bill Blosser. And I think that, yeah, that was it. And we did it at the Erath and it was really just, I mean, we... We put these cuttings in in January, we rooted them, we planted them in May, and then we didn't even have a well dug on our property at the time, so I was using our neighbor's well to water these grapes by hand. We had planted three acres that year, and it was just, it was really, you know, it was, uh, they lived, but it was, it was a lot of, it was just kind of blood, sweat, and tears to get it done. And we were doing it at like with a 50 gallon, you know, barrel of water, so, and dripping it on, or just putting it on each little vine. So, but, um, yeah, actually, the, uh, and 
the the Blossers were our neighbors, which actually Ken and Bill Blosser worked together, but didn't know that each of us were interested in, and they were a year ahead of us, and so their property, our properties surround each other, so we've been, you know, neighbors, and, you know, good neighbors through the years, and it's interesting, I can remember just, you know, when Alex was born, and when, and when Allison was born, I always remember it was a, it was in the winter and we were out pruning and Bill Blosser walked by and said, well, Susan got her little girl. And that was before people knew, you know, what, what, whether they were going to have boys or girls. Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah, so that's been uh, part of it. It's really interesting because Paul and our son Paul and, and Alex are good friends and they share, you know, a lot of the same things. Mm -hmm. that, uh, that, you know, equipment or, you know, helping each other out a lot. So, okay. I think the funny part of the industry, I think when it started there wasn't a farmer in the bunch. You know, there was a bunch of high power technical people that thought they were smart, you know, and the truth of the matter is they were dumb as a rocks. You know, the story that Penny said, no real farmer would do what we did. You know, <laughs> well, I should have known better. My family background is farming. Yeah, <laughs> but not growing stuff like this. No. You know, it caused a lot of divorces. <laughs> <laughs> Which is another problem. But, you know, as time went on, we learned. I, one of the stories that I love to tell is our, we had a neighbor by the name of Ted Wirfs mm -hmm. that were famous for growing peaches in, in this part of the world. They had Wirfs fruit stands, which is down where the fruit stand is today on 99. And Ted and Bernie kind of adopted us. But Ted would come up with his pickup truck when we were out here farming and he would never tell me that I was doing anything wrong. What he would do is somewhere in, this, in the process of discussing it, he would tell me what his father did, you know. And when Ted left, I did what father told me to do, you know, because, you know, again, you know, we were not really dirt farmers, you know. As I said, most of the industry, the beginning of the industry, were technical people. Uh, you were coming out of Tektronics and, you know, just a whole variety of people. It was kind of fun, but the learning curve was vertical, and uh, obviously somewhat stressful at times. <laughs> yeah. So I want to get back to that in a second, but I'm curious, what prompted your interest in wine even before that? What was there? Uh, did you were you just drinking wine at home before that? What what made you want to go down that road? Oh, uh Actually, mine was not so much the wine as actually the the growing, mm -hmm. the the physical, the the land, the the plants, the you know that sourcing that and watching them grow. That was that was what really interested me to just to do that well. Mm -hmm. That was more important to me than and but and, and also to grow good good wine and to also we really sought out we sought out the jewelry soil too. That was something that was important when I looked. We looked a lot in the, we looked some in the Eola Hills too, but still ended up, for some reason, was just drawn to this site. Mm -hmm. It was, and we ended up buying it. Part of the reason our property too was, it was so, it, the one drawback to it was is that we did not have road frontage, so we had to, we have, uh, we had to have a right of way across somebody else's property to get to our property, so, which would, but it worked out fine, so, but in the end, we ended up buying property so that we do more, we just kept adding little pieces to our, to it, so. You know, Penny's a master gardener and, you know, loves to make things grow up with, you know, she gets most of the credit for where we're sitting because there's a nursery over here, which mm -hmm. is the origin of, of Red Ridge, mm -hmm. and then the adjuncts of you know, Olive Mill, Tasting Room, Dwellings, all that is, is all wrapped around how it began because of, of the love of, of growing things, the nursery aspect yeah. of it. So, um, and actually in those early years, I just, uh, Ken would say, oh, this is just a hobby, which was, I was spending, you know, not probably 30 plus hours a week, you know, and it became more than, I just, I, we, he stopped calling it a hobby, <laughs> so as we added to it. And actually there were just really, 
for several years, there were just a few of us that, that, uh, that we cleaned, turned the vineyard all ourselves. There were three of us, uh, Ophelia Galavis, in mm -hmm. fact, the Galavis family, I don't know if you've talked to anyone there, but Ophelia became a really good friend, and she was, um, she and I and Rudy Chavez pruned the, our vineyard for you know, years. years. Mm -hmm. There were three of us, so, yeah. That's interesting, you know, there's just the topic can go on forever, but you know, the, the pruning is a big deal. You know, and I have a lot of fun with people. If you say you have 80 or 90,000 vines, how long does it take to prune a vine? And you say, you know, in time you process it completely, prune it, take the wood off, make the end cuts, tie it down. You spent how many? Three, three minutes, maybe? Maybe four? Yeah. Multiply that times 80,000 or 100,000? It says you better get started, you know, because it takes, it's a, it's a big deal. It's probably the most labor-intensive part of a vineyard mm -hmm. is the pruning of it, kind of a thing. But, but it's been an interesting road. Uh, and he talked about, we came down here with about 16 acres, and today we own probably 140, and none of it's ever gone on the mark. We just, we had a philosophy, let's nibble on the neighbors. You know, you get to know your neighbors, and you tell them if you ever want to sell, call me. Mm -hmm. And so, here we are. In fact, this complex, which looks like it was done on purpose, is, is, is sitting on four different pieces of property that were bought sequentially mm -hmm. over a period of years. Mm -hmm. Now, I wish again there's a lot of fun stories, which we won't bore you with. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Uh, I'm curious now. We're talking. We talked about the steep learning curve, the vertical learning curve. Once you got, once you decided to get started. So tell me some of the. Tell me how you got it, gotten going. Once you decided to put grapes in the ground, where did you find the grapes? How did you learn how to grow them? Okay, you want to go ahead. Sorry. Well, actually, we we actually with the again with that with Eras, we ended up or with uh, Dick and Kina, we ended up. He sourced those first plants that we bought out of California, but then uh, there was a there was a nursery in out of Corvallis, Wayne Roberts, mm -hmm. and we ended up getting a, a lot. Or, uh, I'm sorry, Wayne Roberts was the extension agency. Wayne Anderson, yeah, is the um, was the nursery. In fact, the Anderson, it's there. His son, I think, still does it. Uh, has it, but then we got a lot of uh, vines from him, mm -hmm. and sourced a lot of them from him. And then that was that was before phylloxera came. And then once you know that came, then people then people worried more, not worried, but you had the opportunity to really choose your rootstock, mm -hmm. and then you know your and your your clones, and it became much more important then as to what. You know, it did, well, it's, in a way, it, it, it improved things because we were able to, you know, site plant for... Uh, well, when the industry started, nobody had any money. Yeah. And so everybody was planting on native rootstock because you couldn't afford to buy grafted rootstock. And we all hoped we'd get 15 years out of it, and that's about what we got before phylloxera yeah. took over kind of thing. And you know the story that most virtually all the grapes in the world, especially in Europe, are grown on American rootstock. Yeah. You know, which is, if you have fun with the Europeans, you talk, you know, this is really good wine because I could, the roots came from here. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah actually, I'm, another thing too, I was thinking of uh, Chuck Corey, I'm sure that has come up with you. He was just this um, very volatile, charismatic person that, um, was very opinionated, but obviously, in a way, I always, I always look back on that and feel that he did not really get credit for what he did. He was the he, his his paper on cool climate agriculture is really quite is is. I think that's a lot of the backbone for what a lot of the of us, mm -hmm. you know, it, that became kind of a you know it was something that was in the back of all of our minds that this would really work here. And it was um, even even more so than David Letts, I think. David is our neighbor, was our neighbor, I should say. But uh, and he and he and Chuck Corey were like a little bit, but but still uh, that they both uh, they both had you know made 
made sense, really. But especially, I think Chuck had uh, was not as elusive as as um, it was not as mysterious as as uh, David Bennett was. Sure you heard me yes. I mean, as part of the one of the conflicts in the industry, <laughs> who was first? Well, yeah. it really is, is who was first with the Pino. I mean, the first grade for Glenn Roseburg, and you know, in this whole sequence. You know, but the truth of the matter is, you can go back. There were a lot of grapes in Oregon before prohibition. Mm -hmm. You know, and some of us went to Oregon State. You know, we knew about Hugo's bottled wine. And, you know, it's fortunate that we're not blind. Uh, but uh, uh, it, it, the history is good. In fact, you know, Penny mentioned was Chuck's thesis, which hopefully you have a copy. Oh, I'm sure you've we read do, it. You know, it had a lot to do with a whole lot of this industry. Mm -hmm. You know, and you've also heard the story, I'm sure, that the, these four guys or whatever coming out of Davis said, you know, we want to go Pinot Noir, and they looked for the 2,500 degree days and the 2,250 degree days, mm -hmm. discovered Western Oregon, and the professor said, that's the stupidest idea we've ever heard. And they said, fine, we're going to go do it anyway. Mm -hmm. You know, and as I said, that's, you know, the rest is history. Mm -hmm. You look across the way at the French. Mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> So, yeah, it's kind of fun. Yeah. It's, it's really been fun to be in the beginning of it. Actually, a good story that um, when Susan uh, Blosser and I went to the groundbreaking when, um, that was held when, when, the, when they came, and Robert uh, Drouhan said, someone, in, one of the reporters asked him, um, he said, uh, what, were your, what do your colleagues think of what you've done in France coming to America to do this and his answer was they probably wish that they had thought of it first so which I thought was uh, was very very true so, yeah. so they have been really good neighbors when we first when they first came uh, we and um, we sold them grapes for a, a, a long time, and then finally it got to the point where they, you know, they, we, everybody moves on at some point. But they were still, they were really, uh, they've been really great um, and just very, been great neighbors. So. One of the stories I tell about that, which I think is true, and it needs to be validated probably, but when Robert came, you know, it was an opportunity to come to the New World. It's the only facility they yeah. have outside of France. Mm -hmm. But I think one of the significant parts was his daughter, you know, was the winemaker. Veronique. Veronique. Yeah. Yeah. And I believe at that time she probably could not have been the winemaker in France. Mm -hmm. You know, which, you know, today that's not true, but at that, oh, yeah. that era, you know, mm -hmm. yeah, it's just uh, the chauvinistic side of you know, that part of the world. Mm -hmm. Were there any surprises when you got started? Was there anything that you were a challenge that arose that you weren't expecting when it, when you started planting and harvesting? It's a lot of hard work. Was it harder than you expected? Well, you know, probably not because we didn't know any better. Uh, I, I tell people today, you know, in business, there's a rule that says. It should be labor intensive or capital intensive. Mm -hmm. The vineyard world is both. Yeah. It's capital intensive and labor intensive. Mm -hmm. And therefore, it's, it, in some ways, it's not a very good business model. Now, uh, I suspect the vast majority of, of the Oregon vineyards, which are relatively small, were done as a, as a desire. You know, you know the, what the humor was, it's the romance in the vineyard, but we, nobody's yet found it. Everybody's still looking for the romance in the vineyard, but, you know, I mean, we have numerous acquaintances. Actually, that's not totally true. There was something. has, uh, you know, you have five or six acres. It, it's not a viable block. It's, it's a lifestyle. It's, yeah. it's a tough deal. Part of it was, I think, in our, our plan, I say we had a business plan. It was not, not really, but we... Uh, was is that because we were growers, our situation is different. It, now we have a winery, but that wasn't we that wasn't originally part of. I mean, we were going to grow grapes and sell them, mm -hmm. and so that was one thing that was really that never really happened to us. We never ever had trouble selling our grapes. Mm -hmm. We always 
we always could sell them. So, and we, uh, I actually, at one point had, um, I, when new people were, like Eric Comaker was an example, he was a young winemaker. He bought grapes from us for a long time, maybe because he couldn't buy them from anybody else. But, but we, we sold to young winemakers like that. And it was, and I think, and, and also um, um, the Bergstrom family too. Uh, we did that, uh, and so, but, and though, and, and of course they've all moved on, but we sold grapes for a long time to Ponzi's too, so, but it was never an issue about selling our grapes, which I am always, we always could do that, and Paul, now, we still sell grapes, because we don't, we don't, you know, use all our grapes for our own wine. Yeah, we sell 75% so, of the grapes yeah. we grow. Wow. So. so, we have huge up capacity, but, you know, you know, to a lot of Penny's credit, yeah. our vineyard has a good name. It's, it's on a lot of labels. Yeah. Um, yeah, it and, so. you know, we have kidded both of our children, which are adults doing their own thing today. That it was great wisdom that we understood that this centroid, this ABA would be the centroid of the high-end, you know, Oregon wine industry. And, you know, and people that have other ABAs probably think a little bit differently. But, you know, there's a lot of justification that this is a good ABA and it's probably helped because we got some big neighbors that advertise a lot too, you know, yeah. and you all know who's across the crest here. <laughs> In fact, we send everybody we know to go see a $30 million tasting room. <laughs> yeah. Not everybody has a $30 million tasting room. No, not here, that's for sure. Yeah. So take us through the progression then. You mentioned how having a winery, making your own wine, wasn't part of the original plan. That wasn't. So, uh, but, so now you have a winery, you have the olives, you have the nursery. Tell us kind of how those things kind of came to be over the years. Well, actually the real money is not in growing the grapes. It's the money is you know, in selling the wine. Mm -hmm. And so that became very obvious. Mm -hmm. and, that, that was it eventually, and really, in all fairness, Paul was the one that really wanted to do it. So in 2003, we had people make, start making wine for us. And from there, uh, you know, then, and we had not just one, but we had how many, uh, like several. We uh, six, six different wines. Yeah, so that made wine for us, so in a, in a way, it was, and so, and that, We've had the philosophy too that we don't blend. Mm -hmm. So as Paul probably told you, have you interviewed him too? Next. Oh, okay. All right. Well, he'll tell you more too. We shouldn't go into you. Uh, we probably want to know more about the past, I guess. And um, okay, so do you want the the olives? So that's really new. I mean, I uh, and it's really not part of the the wine. It's okay. It was. Um, but in, uh, when Ken retired, uh, he went with me one day to pick up a, a, a plant order over in Canby. And, and in that order, there were, some, there were olive trees. And he said he thought I was nuts to buying olive trees. And I said, well, I just, we sell them here in the nursery just as a kind of a novelty. Mm -hmm. And mainly, uh, there's, I think that there's a certain symbolism in olive trees and that they are you know, they're a symbol of peace or that there's that there's some intrinsic value to that particular plant but anyway but Ken actually got very interested in it and uh, and he and Ken you can tell the story but then you ended up going to Davis and talking to uh, North American plants and uh, and you should, I let you tell your own story, but you got, uh, how we got, really, that's really how we got started, was, if he hadn't gone with me that day, we might not be in. <laughs> I think there's probably more truth to that. Yeah. I wanted to think about. But you know, the word retire is not an acceptable word to me, but the, the other R word, which I tell a lot of people, is you should refocus. Because people that retire die fairly early, you know, and none of us are interested in that. So you gotta find something to do to keep the stuff between your ears still moving. So, you know, refocusing is a good deal. And interestingly enough, what the story Penny told is exactly right. And I kinda loved the idea because I knew zero about it. 
and I knew I had an opportunity for a vertical learning curve. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, we have great relationships in California with the California Olive Industry and the Dean of Davis is a personal friend now. And I kid about it a little bit, they have been very, very supportive of us. We buy 100, 100 plus tons of olives out of Northern California and convert it into oil. And I kind of kid about it you know, a little bit in the sense that that uh, they kind of see us like missionaries, teaching Oregonians the attributes of good olive oil, you know. Because the irony is that 40 years ago, wine was red, white, and pink. And tonight, today, it's all varietal. Mm -hmm. Today, people think olive oil is olive oil. Not true. There are more varieties of olives in the world than there are grapes. And what I, we challenge people is go over to the store and taste through the olive oil that's there. It's very distinctive. And mm -hmm. now everybody has their favorite, but you know, you know my, my story is, you know, you use Arbacino on your salad and Tuscan on your pasta, but you know, you want to use Carnicchi on your ice cream. And if you haven't done that, you're missing out. Because one of our largest wholesale customers is Salt and Straw, <laughs> which is where they make olive oil ice cream. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's been a hoot. It's, uh, Paul and I just came back, and Paul probably mentioned it. We make an annual trip to California with cases of wine and we give it to the people that we've been buying olives from for about 10 years. In fact, one family's virtually adopted Paul. You know? And it's just a lot of fun, and we are a pain to them because they pick their olives into gondolas and take them to the mill. And we end up with these little white boxes, which we ask them to load. And then we have a great relationship with a trucking company. And they'll pick them up at the end of the day and they'll be here in the morning. And uh, if you haven't seen the mill, you should. And you know, this runs for about a month. Um, in the fall, probably beginning of October and ending in late November. And in the process of doing all this, you know, uh, we, we part of the deal when we bought the mill was to be trained to run it. And a young miller came from Rome, who that's what he did in the world, was teach people how to make olive oil. And his name is Duccio, and Paul named his dog after Duccio, so we have a dog named Duccio now, too. And Duccio came a couple of years. The last year he came, he said, you know, in, in, in Italy, when we're done, we have a festival called Olio Nuovo. You know, it's like, duh. So instantly we started. So we've been doing this for 10 years. Uh, we do it Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Last year we only had 5,000 people show up for this thing because Olio Nuovo is an olive oil that's unique to being at a mill. It has very limited shelf life. Mm -hmm. yeah. And people that are, know about olive oil instantly want to come get some because you know, where else are you going to get it? Mm -hmm. you know? So it's been a lot of fun, you know, but it adds to the, to the chaos that goes on here. I mean, you know, we harvest grapes and we harvest olives, we make olive oil and we prune grapes, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's just a, it's a merry-go-round that never stops. Yeah, the nursery really was, um, when I decided I didn't want, I, I didn't, I, driving that tractor down the road, I was getting older and decided I don't want to do this the rest of my life. And I would, had always had a fascination with, with herbs and with, with plants. And so, and it just out that I thought I really wanted to have an herb nursery someday. And so, we were able to buy this, like there's 3.17 acres where the, the building, the Red Ridge building and the, and the greenhouses sit. And we bought that and we, but we didn't at the time, we bought it in the 90s, early 90s. And we were going to, and I have a, a, a flock of sheep and I was really going to run my sheep up here and then it just didn't work out. So I grew garlic and shallots on it for a while. and. Um, and then out of that, when I decided I didn't want to be, do the, keep doing the vineyard, uh, then I, uh, we started to develop this. And mm -hmm. so, uh, and it took, it actually took us, uh, oh gosh, four years, I guess, or uh, 
yeah, at least four years to get the zoning changed. And it was it, it was a real hassle, and it was not a pleasant thing. Thanks to one of our neighbors, who I will not mention his name, uh, but. Um, but we finally uh, succeeded, and it worked out. It's you know, and 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 his greatest fears did not happen. That he, I think, I don't know what he thought we would do, but um, anyway. But it's worked out that uh, you know, and then we were just able to, again, as Ken said, pick up pieces around. So right here, there's about it's all length now, but there's about uh, what I'd say 30 plus acres, including Stony Crest and and this. And this is where we are right now, and then the original 3.17 acres. So, yeah, uh, it had been planted. Uh, a lot of it. This had been planted to to a. Well, actually, no. It, it, the 28 acres that we bought had this forest on it, which is really neat to walk in. It's the, the when you walk into a for um, a tree stand that has been. Well, it was originally a. Christmas trees, and they they went, uh, they just went wild. But you walk in there, and it changes the whole sound. It changes. It's really a neat feeling, and we still have a few of those trees left. So anyway, but that I forget about. I don't want to forget about the nursery part. So. Well, the the whole Redridge thing is a story unto itself. Uh, you know what Penny wanted to do is what we did. You know. Uh, the problem is, you know, why would you drive up on the hills to go to a nursery when you can drive by Kramer's in, in McMinnville? You know, but which is a good nursery, which is I still shop at. But this is kind of what we wanted to do, and it, it, at one time there was a hundred different kinds of, of lavender here, and there's still a lot of lavender here, and a whole variety of things, and you know, the, all the way back to to the olives. You know, Penny said, you know, it's, it's that what we sell is is herbs and, and especially plants, especially plants or anything I like. You know, and so that the cute liking olive trees is how the whole olive thing got started. But the, in the end of the day, today the nursery does really well because of olive trees. Yeah, we really do. Yeah, and because we have a lot of experimentation going on. <coughs> the problem of growing olives in the Northwest is is cold. You know, we're looking for an olive that wants to live at zero. Most olive trees will die at 10. Yeah. We don't have that very often, but we, when we do have it, a lot of bad things happen. Well, Oregon State has a grant right now too, uh, to study olives, which is really nice. And so we are involved in that grant. And we actually have a, our nursery person right now is, is very interested in propagating too. So. Um, Ilana Lambert is our she's our nursery person right now, and so she and so it's been really fascinating to have them to have you know Oregon State be involved with that, and and the extension agent that we deal with is actually she's in Midwinfield too, so that helps. But then they are doing it. Uh, we're they're, we're doing uh, part of the study here, but then also at the Aurora Station they're 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 duplicating it too, so. Which makes it nice. And we're talking a lot about olive. We can come back to grapes in a bit. Sure. But yeah. when Paul left his professional career and gave up a lot of money to lifestyle trumps money, uh, we were already in the olive thing. So he went off to Davis and became a master miller. And is is and the, and the oil we do here obviously does pretty well because we win gold medals in New York, kind of a thing. But the, this last Saturday, Oregon State and ourselves had a symposium here that was free, mm -hmm. but you know, had a variety of people that talked about olives and what kind of where it is and what's going on and what the research is. It was, and we actually held it down at the winery. There was probably 110 people just showed up. So there's a pretty high level of interest. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're asked all the time, you know, should, you, should we plant olives? And our position is, only if you're a high-stakes gambler, because we need to solve this freeze problem. And so when you look at the inside of the nursery, you'll find trees out of Central Europe and all kinds of other places. Actually, there, we have trees from the Ukraine, and actually it's a, there's another nursery here that's importing those. And so we can't patent, or we can't propagate from those, but, the, but they are you know, interesting trees. In fact, it, we had a little trouble selling them last year 
because they have names that are very Russian sounding, and like Star of Crimea is one. Um, anyway, but they, but people have, you know, we've, it has not been the case. Uh, people, if the tree grows well, it doesn't really matter. So what its name is. So, and we actually have some Syrian trees too, but uh, that are an, an experiment. Well, we can learn a lot about olives, but we restarted. This is all wrapped around vineyards. And the, the, the truth of the matter is the vineyard is still the backbone of what goes on here. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, we have 60 plus acres of a vineyard that has a good name, thanks to Penny and the, and the ABA we're, we're in and all the rest. Uh, and we convert about 25% of it to, to wine for the, for, the, for the family label. Yeah. But it's, it's the backbone of, of, that's allowed us to do all these other things. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it just continues to be that way. And, uh, you know, we made the decisions two or three years ago that we would, in fact, no longer have wine made by others, but we would do it ourselves. Yeah. So a lot, of, a lot of sequences there, and Paul can talk about that, but mm -hmm. we had a very talented winemaker that came to us looking to, to come to work for us because there was a rumor around that we were going to do this, and we did. Uh, and uh, so it's, it's, yeah. and it's a story unto itself. Uh, yeah. you know, I, again, part of my humor here is that uh, you know I've interviewed a lot of wine in my life, and none of it, all the wine I've interviewed, none of it, said the architecture of the building was of any importance to <laughs> Now, what was important to me as is, is, is a little berry that's going to become wine is what's going to touch me. <laughs> so you, you really need great equipment. So my comment about our winery is I love my pole buildings. <laughs> now, so, you know, it's, it's all about keeping me in perspective as to you know, what's really important relative to where you're going. Mm. One thing that is, has been really important to me um, through the years, especially working in the vineyard, has been my, our employees. And um, without all of the people that I really work with are, are Mexicans. And um, I have uh, really strong feelings about our, the immigration issues that we are facing right now. and. Uh, the uh, what has happened, what is happening to um, you know to families that uh, don't have the opportunity to uh, really be able to speak for themselves. And I don't know if you, you probably have interviewed Kevin Chambers, but I can remember sitting in a meeting with him, with one of our uh, federal uh, representatives. I think it was uh, David Wong at the time and him saying that, well, he didn't think that it was a real issue. And Kevin Chambers looked at him and said, do you realize that 95% of the people in Yamhill County that work in the vineyards are not legal? So what do you, this is a big problem for us. And it really is uh, uh, that you, you can't, just even in interviewing here to try to find the people that work, our gardeners that work with us here are Mexican. Um, and they um, they have driver's licenses, which means that they are legal. But uh, they actually, uh, I have tried through the years to hire people that were, you know, Caucasian people, and I just, I, it is almost uh, impossible to find people that really want to work that hard. We have some, we have we have part-time, you know, women and high high school. Uh, young women and and guys that, that do fine, but they are going to be going on to do something else. But it's people that I just find it. Uh, and I find that just a that's that's just a problem in the industry. So that and I'm sure you've heard it from everybody else, and it's not a solvable problem right now. So. Well, my side street on this is, and I tell people all the time because I'm asked the question by. As I wander the property, about where did we get the people that work here? I mean, this is a beautiful site. You know, we are fortunate. I mean, the, the state, the we'll just look out the window, kind of a thing. You know, and the facilities here are really uh, of, of quality. 
that the best asset we have are the people that work here. Mm-hmm. We have a great staff. Mm-hmm. And I heard one I heard one of them say the other day, the reason we're a great staff is because we all like each other. Which I thought was a nice thing to say, you know. Because it's super important, especially when you interface with the public, that you have people that, you know, represent you well and represent themselves well. Mm-hmm. And so we've been very fortunate. And although we're pretty good at sorting the, sorting the bushel too. If, if there's an apple in there that looks like it might rot, it leaves pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. So, because it is all wrapped up in interpersonal relationship. Mm-hmm. Do you have any other questions you want to ask us? Specifically about the past, or sure, the, just, just I can't even think. I don't know. I'm curious. To see, I'm curious when you, when you started here. You said you started right after this, right after the Sokol Blossers. So you had you had neighbors when you started planting. Uh, I'm curious about watching this area grow over the years and what that what that's been like as some of the original original vineyard planters. Well, one of the funny uh, stories I tell is that this house was was the McDougal house, mm-hmm. and the McDougals lived here. They had no children. And the basement in this house was the local dance hall. And Saturday night, all the neighbors came and square danced in the basement of this house. And when they died, they, they willed it to a, a distant relative. And their son actually lived here. And the, the, it was, this was the Payne house. And old man Payne would come up. And, and I loved the guy. He was an old grumpy guy, kind of like I am now. Uh, and what he used to tell me with some frequency is I could have bought this whole hill for $100 an acre. And my response always was, you damn well should have. <laughs> because when we came, Druhan wasn't here. I mean, mm-hmm. that was all in, in wheat, mm-hmm. you know. And Ted Wirth, the guy I mentioned earlier, would ask me at least once a year, are you sure you can grow wine grapes here? Mm-hmm. Because, again, we were pushing against, you know, the Davis thing, you can't go to Oregon and plant wine grapes, you know, you know, now you just, this hill is, I say we've nibbled away to where we have about 140 acres, there's nobody else to nibble on, because it's all been acquired around us, so it's, it's been, it's been a really fun, fun time to do things. Yeah, uh, actually one thing, I, I think that we are fortunate in that we can pass this on to our to our next generation to Paul, and there are a few. The Blossers are fortunate that way, as are the Ponzi's. But there are lots of families that their children either don't want to do it or they can't do it, or for whatever reason. And like the Eras, you know, Dick and Keena had two sons, and they are just you know, one's a musician and one is not interested. So. But uh, but it's it, you know from that standpoint we feel lucky. You build this up to a certain point. If Paul had decided not to come back, you know we would have sold. We would have just had. We would have at some point sold this. But which is half, which is happened. True. Let's talk about that. When did it become? When did it become Paul's idea to come back? And then how did you manage that kind of transition? Well, he'll probably tell you. I got. I got to ask. I got to ask yeah. both sides. Yeah. Well, he will just said. It would, he came back in 2010, mm-hmm. so, and that has been, um, and then, but before that, he'll tell you, his, he said, you know, he was saying, he said he talked to his sister about, um, I just heard him say this recently, uh, about saying, well, you know, I really would like to do this, and she said, well, what are you waiting for? Are you waiting till mom and dad die? <laughs> and, and he said, well, Maybe <laughs> something. <laughs> so he decided that he would come back. So anyway, so and that's it. And it's it's actually I'm sure we get in his hair at times. Well, I know we do. So, uh, but to try to just you know stay out of each other's way sometimes. Family businesses are like, for example, this morning, um, Carlos uh, Rodriguez is here working on pavers, and uh, and he said. <laughs> You know, Paul, Paul said, he said, well, Paul said something, and then Ken had talked to him, and he said, well, I don't think Paul wants to do that now. He said, come back later. And I said, well, why? Are you here? And so we ended up talking, and it was just like, you know, sometimes there are just too many people giving, <laughs> and that was it. And that was just one of those it's hard little to play mis- football with yeah, quarterbacks. You know, a little misunderstanding. <laughs> but, you know, yeah. but, it's, but it's okay, you know, because it is what it is. 
But Paul's, you know, graduate of the University of Texas, and, you know, master's degree in engineering, making a, a significant income. And basically, as Penny said, he came and said, you know, this is what I want to do. And we said, we can't afford you. And he said, I've already made a deal to cut my wages in half. You know, but then my uh, rest of the story is once he got here, he's now we're raising the bar, which has been helpful to me because it's kept me busier than I probably would have been, which helped me refocus, which mm -hmm. gets back to this whole story again, yeah. kind of a thing. And Paul's quite active in the industry, as you may already know, or, and uh, represents the industry well, I think. But again, our variety, because is there anybody else making olive oil in Oregon you know, today? And uh, it's, yeah, it's a challenge, though, really. I just went down there looking at those trees that need to be pruned. <laughs> but it's just, yeah, it's just, you know, a lot of work. We're not very good at, we're good at working, but not very good about playing. So sometimes you do. No, we don't. We don't play well. Yeah. <laughs> That's for sure. Well, it's, it's been it's been a real fun trip. I mean, and yeah. obviously, you know, and we're not going to worry about it. Although I kid about it, I may come back every twenty five years to see how the industry's doing. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> where it happens after Paul gives it up, who knows? Mm -hmm. A lot of things is going to happen. A lot of things are going to happen. You know, one of the one of the problems, side stories again. We have acquaintances that have seven acres of vineyard and have a wonderful home, and their kids would love it, but their kids can't afford it because it's, it's not supporting. There isn't enough of a base there to support their lifestyle. So, you know, it, it's fortunate when you can build something that's big enough that will allow you to, to survive and participate in it. You know, because I think in the beginning a lot of this industry was very small and it was really people that had discretionary income that were making it somewhere else and spending it doing this. You know, it's the story of the farmer. You want a small fortune, start with a big one. No, there's more truth to that than you want to well, I think that one of our advantages is, is that we started when we were young, too. We were in our, you know, 30s. and. Um, and the advantage to that was is that we had, um, you know, we we were able to build something that then. But like we have people come and stay with us from, uh, and they're people that have been very successful in their life. They're in their fifties, say. Uh, their kids are, you know, are, are you know in college or or you know starting careers. But and then they they come they live they come and stay at our our uh, our uh, facilities that are uh, are and and uh, some of them uh, two or three of the families have come and done uh, you know just stayed through the years and uh, they they buy 15 acres really build a lovely house on the property and then the, here they are in their 50s early 60s and then they don't have any, their children have already launched their careers into something else. They, and so they end up selling it. Uh, there are some younger families around that aren't doing that, that I think made it big in the, uh, you know, in the, you know, in the technology somehow and, and were able to stop that and start early. But, a lot, and so they end these. There's a lot of little places around like that for sale mm -hmm. now. Yeah. So, so in that sense, I feel lucky that we did it. What are the uh, what are the biggest changes you've seen in the industry mm -hmm. besides just pure size? Obviously, it's grown a lot. But what are the biggest changes you've seen in the Oregon industry since since you were well, on the ground? Most significant part of the Oregon wine industry is just now recognized internationally. I mean, Oregon Pinot Noir is, is, I don't think, takes a backseat to anybody today. And, you know, I'm sure neither Penny or I are wine experts, but we hear stories about, I mean, it's, it's, it may be better than the French. As a matter of fact, it is better than the French. <laughs> you know, that's kind of, you know, the, the, the psyche today. Paul and I were talking earlier today about, you know, the, some of the philosophies that we ought to go forward with. And you know, you go to the East Coast, and uh, the word Oregon's a big deal. Mm -hmm. You know, 
And, and there's a lot of people that deserve credit for that because an awful lot of this industry spent time on the road. Mm -hmm. you know? Well, and still do. Too. Yeah. So it's, it, I think it, it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of rewarding, I think, for a lot of people that it's happened. And there are some people around who will claim that they get it. <laughs> but the truth of the matter is they participated in it. They did not do it, <laughs> you know, because it's a collective thing. And everybody makes their wine differently. That all doesn't taste the same. Yeah. You know, I just had an interesting conversation out front here about, you know, Pinot Noir is a very, very difficult wine to make. The grapes are hard to grow. And it's, it's a very sophisticated wine. And therefore, you know, when people say, no, I'm a cab guy, I say, well, yeah, that, that's a truck driver wine. If you were sophisticated, you know, you'd drink Pinot Noir, you know. <laughs> because making heavy reds is a lot easier than making good Pinot Noir. I'm sure you've heard that story before, too. Never quite that way, though, so I like that. Never, never heard it quite that way. You know, so... It's kind of, you know, it, it has been fun. Um, as, as you, along those lines, where do you see the industry going in the future? You mentioned, uh, you mentioned not coming back and checking on it every so often. What do you, what do you see as you look down and look at Oregon wine in 10 or 15 years down the road? Mm. Uh, you know, I don't really think of it in those terms. I, uh, uh, I think that one thing that's happening now is, is that there will be more more big California wineries moving into Oregon and it's happening now. I see that uh, happening and I see them you know, buying up more land um, at these extravagant prices because they can afford it. I just I think that it will become a much more uh, it will become a the smaller growers will not, they will still exist, but not on as, but not as many of us, really. I know this, this industry is going to be here for a while. You know, this hill that we're on at one time it was full of walnuts and filberts. And cherries, all, too. And cherries, those are all gone and today. Prunes. But if you look at the investment, you look at Druhan, and then you look at Serene, look at Archery Summit, I mean, these, these are major facilities, mm -hmm. and so I think the wine industry has got real ability to sustain itself for a long time. And my, my flippancy, which affects all you young people, is, is they're not making any more land. Mm -hmm. You can't lose by owning a piece of land, because they're not making it anymore. You know, and whatever, you, however much you think you paid for it, which is too much, Ten years from now, you'll think, "Boy, that was a smart move," you know, kind of a thing. So it's it's kind of fun in that sense. But I think, as I said, I think coming back every twenty-five years and checking on it, this is this is this this ABA right here is going to be unbelievable. Mm -hmm. I truly believe that, mm -hmm. and that view's not going away mm -hmm. unless we have a rector dying. And then we'll be a, then we'll be an oceanside lot. <laughs> so one more question for you, and this is something you this alludes back to something you talked about earlier about the difficulties uh, the uh, difficulties in marriage in this industry. So I'm curious, as a couple who's made it work being in the wine industry together for this long, what's the secret to a successful marriage in the wine industry? I think one of our successes was is that Ken didn't wasn't around in the early years that I was here, and he, he wasn't uh, in some ways. That what we 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 actually still lived in Portland and didn't move out here. On the, so I was out here, you know, during the week, and then we'd come on weekends. Um, but uh, I think that was it, and it was mainly. Um, I think it was because I was just really, really involved in it that it was uh, that, and I wasn't a second partner, so to speak. Mm -hmm. That uh, so in, in that sense, I think that we it was. Uh, don't what do you think? Because you you worked at you had another job that allowed us to buy property and to allowed us to spend money on this. 
crazy well, adventure. I think because of her interest in land, it's always been very collaborative. Yeah. And it was, this was an investment opportunity, and I laughed about it. I had a very high-stress job in the city, and so on weekends, my relaxation was to come out here and get on a tractor and drive it so fast that it required 100% of my attention. So at the end of the day, I would be physically tired and mentally rested. And, and, and that was really important to me. That was one of the things our neighbor, Ted Burfs, talked to him about, was that he drove the tractor too fast. Yeah, yeah. yeah but that was, that was the strategy that I had. And also, you know, I, you know, we all have some degree of visionary in our life. And, you know, I can envision what was going to happen here, you know. And yeah. because of that, a lot of what was, has happened was part of that vision. You know, yeah. it's you know it's, it's. I don't think we're done yet. That's the fun part. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because also I get the assignment. Even though Paul's an engineer as well, because that's my base base. Is is build do projects. You know, we yeah. have one project right after another. In fact, I know what the next two are already. You know, so there's at least five years worth of project that we've yet to do. <laughs> you know, and that makes it a lot yeah. of fun. Yeah. And, you know, Penny comes off of a ranch, so, you know, the the dirt thing is part of ingrained in her. And uh, it was just, it was was just collaborative as hell. Doesn't get any better than that. Well, actually, one of the big, one of the arguments that we had was that we were able to, it was just kind of a fluke, we were able to buy these 28 acres that were right next to this property and it actually it, it really just wrapped around where Red Ridge is now and um, and Ken said well the only way we can afford to buy that is, is that we have to sell part of it you know that's the only and I said no we aren't going to sell any of it and it was a big argument until he actually walked on the property and realized there was a lot of grape land there and so all of the Stony Crest is grape land he really it looks like it's a canyon or that it's all Canyon, but it isn't. It's amazing. No, we bought a site on Saint. Yeah. Again, we were in a restaurant in McMinnville, and the waitress spoke out of turn and said, "Oh yeah, my my realtor has just listed a new piece of property." Uh, I said, "Really?" Now, well, I called up the realtor next day and said, "I understand you're going to list this property." He said, "Yeah, how do you know that?" And I said, "Well, so and so told me. Well, she's in trouble with me, but uh, yeah, yes, you're right." And, he, and I said, what's the price? And he told me, and I said, well, you just sold it. And it never came on the market. Uh, and I did, we'd never been on the property, and it gets into my, yeah. what just said. I said, you know, we can't afford that. We'll have to sell half of it. And then I walked on it and I said, ain't me selling it. <laughs> it was just, the, and the people that owned it were nuts. We had, she, the woman that was an animal rights person, and she knew that, that uh, Del Smith had these, lions and tigers or ligers or whatever and she was her plan was to gunite in the canyon and run these tigers and lions in this canyon and I thought and my sheep are right next door so (laughs) it was a wild crazy nutty thing so anyway she yeah she didn't do it obviously yeah I can tell yeah. Well, thank you both so much. That's all the questions that I have. Is there anything I should have asked that I didn't? Anything we didn't cover that we needed to? I don't know. Well, as you know, you've done this numerous times, obviously. You know, the stories go on forever, mm-hmm. you know. And, you, you know, I don't think it's so much the, the years that, you, that have passed, but it's, it's actually like the moments. It's like you don't remember the past and, and big times. You remember little segments of it. It's not like it's a, you know, a, like, what do you remember? You remember, you know, riding across the, on a four-wheeler, you know, on a frosty October morning to harvest. I mean, those are things that just lock in your mind. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just little, it's those moments more than it is the big, mm-hmm. the big events. Yeah, it's been interesting. I didn't, fortunately, didn't spend my career in retail. Because I, I find it distressful, I guess. But what I've learned is it's all about the story. Mm-hmm. And people want to hear the story. You know, and again, my flippancy, again, because of the power of the technology industry in Oregon, 
the Pearl District is loaded with a bunch of young people that make a significant amount of money, and they want to they want to come out here and see what dirt looks like. Can I see some dirt? You know, and, and you realize suddenly it's, the story is really important to them. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, this is dirt. <laughs> That's what dirt looks like. <laughs> That's almost an insult. More true to it than not. <laughs> anyway, well, thank you both okay. so much. We really do appreciate this, and uh, and we'll we'll let you off the hook here. Okay. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast, and thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.